0: This week on the show we review Brian Callahan's first open BSD port a little, that BSD 9.2 on a deck alpha CPU in QMU with x 11 running, a FreeBSD experiment to rethink the OS install, GhostBSD switching to FreeBSD RC.d, IRIX gets LLVM, and more in this week's episode of BSD now. BSD Now, episode 419, Rethinking OS Installs, recorded on the 25th of August 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for backups for the truly paranoids and everything around it. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome to our fresh episode for this week. New content from the BSD world always into your uh, earlobes. Well, close to that at least. Uh, Headlines this week include reviewing my first OpenBSD port and what I do differently 10 years later by Brian Callahan. So yeah, uh, Brian Callahan is known. I think we had him on the show a couple years ago. Oh, gee, we should do another interview with him. Um, (laughs) So he wrote in his blog about uh, his first BSD port 10 years later. So he's reviewing what he did there and the learnings he took out of that. And he writes, by popular demand, well, probably Twitter and some, uh, or the BSD network yeah, on Mastodon, uh, he has unearthed his first OpenBSD port. Uh, he will first review it and discuss what he would have done differently now after 10 years of working on ports. So, and also have a YouTube video reviewing the port up in a few days. That's probably the time when you hear this episode. And we'll update this post once it's up. Okay, so if you click the show notes link, then it will be there. So, Beret, a puzzle platformer game. Never heard of it. The first part I ever sent was Beret. Is it that? Beret. F-beret? Beret. 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 Okay. A 2D puzzle platformer game. I mumble each time the name comes up. Uh, <laughs> I guess even from the beginning, I was helping out THFR at OpenBSD.org and in his uh, Play on BSD project. I cannot find the very first attempt at it, as it seems I linked a tarball from a server that has since gone to the great Bitbucket in the sky. So I have the first tarball I posted instead. So here's the makefile. The most important, or at least meaty part of any port, is usually the makefile. And that is true here as well. Let's have a look. Uh, this is what. So he posts the whole makefile here. Of course, I'm not reading the makefile to you, um, but has mistakes and all, as he says. But it's 10 years old, so what do you know? It's what it is. And it's useful. I mean, it provided another port for OpenBSD. And so what's his uh, takeaway? Okay, so things have changed in the interim decade. Sure, why uh, wouldn't uh, updates to the port system in OpenBSD happen? So that's all fine and good. Um, I'm going to fix up this make file to fit into today's ports infrastructure, since you cannot build the port as is. What needs to change? Fortunately, not too much. The permit packages line has been simplified. We used to have all these permutations when we shipped CDs, but today that no longer happens and it has been streamlined to a single permit uh, underscore package line. So let's do that to make our lives a little easier. So he does that and provides the updated Makefile. Then let's start from the top and work our way down. Our first issue is on the very top line. The RCS ID should read $OpenBSD$. Not a huge problem, but needs to be fixed. One important style tweak that you may have noticed, I did with the new permit underscore package line, putting a space after each variable name. I would highly recommend for all new ports that uh, should do this, okay. Moving on, I would like to make the license marker more exacting. The current tag lgplv3 is slightly ambiguous. It could mean lgplv3 only, or it could mean lgplv3 or later. For beret, it lgplv3 so that's uh, what i would tweak the license marker to then he talks about lip depends lists which informs the port system uh, about the shared libraries to be found in ports that are linked to this program and thus are needed on the system at both build time and runtime, and there seem to be extra libraries uh, both converter slash lib and print slash free type do not appear in the want list lib which is the list of all shared libraries this port needs so that tells him that either these libraries are not needed on the want list uh, is correct or, yeah, something else. We will learn which of these is the case once we have successfully built the port. For now, let's assume they are extra and we'll move them. If we're wrong about that, we'll find out soon enough and the fix is easy enough. Add them back. Then a little further down. Uh, further down, he writes, ah, yeah. The last tweak I would make uh, would be to put a comment about why we have the do install routine. Oh, yes, comments are a thing in source code. I hear good things about them. In this case, it is because Upstream did not write an installation routine, so we have to do it ourselves. Okay, then there's a section about patches. Uh, there's a patches directory that's not uh, part of the makefile, but uses uh, the makefile or the makefile uses it in return. Um, this uh, has two patches in there patch makefile and patch game c. So here, the patch to make file has a couple of LF flags changes. Uh, oh yeah. There was some hard coding in there back then to use a local or user X11R6. Remember that. Uh, instead we can again use sdl-config to get the correct linker flags, which would be added to the make file. We just finished editing and removed from this patch. Then further down, he's providing a new patch as a result. And then trying out the revised port. Let's try out to build our new port. This is the finalized make file. And remember too, we have removed patch dash make file. Okay, build process seems to start. Uh, make make sum, which fetches the tarball and generates a disk file, worked fine. But he didn't expect any issues here. And make configure, which will run make extract and make patch as well, also worked fine. And he seems that the variable expansion took place correctly. So those changes earlier were successful. Okay, it seems to build now. And conclusion at the end, testing to make sure it works. Now we can run it and make install and see it works. It does, though. That, that isn't too surprising. And with that, we have finished revising our port. Well, it is it is what it is. I mean, it's a small port, but it's a good start in explaining to people how they can write their own port.
1: I, I think this sort of article is a, a great introduction to have written. Um... It reminds me of um, people streaming doing BSD development, and it just shows how how small contributions are sometimes. I mean, lots of contributions are a single line diff, and they're, they're not a ton of work. And a building a port is a lot more work than that. But I think Brian introduces in a really um, a really nice, friendly way. I think I think Brian has been writing a, a series of articles about a compiler and a linker recently i think it'd be great to have brian buck back on actually
0: yeah if you are listening brian we can uh, reach out and uh, find a date to make the interview like we did last week with michael lucas and um we uh, yeah so he concludes with following along with the upcoming video yeah that also helps seeing what he's doing uh maybe more illuminating than uh, just the blog post alone But I hope you learned something about how I approach creating OpenBSD ports. I enjoyed revising my first port, though I note it's basically identical to the current version of the port. That's kind of nice. Yeah, if it doesn't need much maintenance or changes in the ports infrastructure, then why not? Having a port out there that a lot of people potentially use, you never know what what they use, what they uh, make with that port. Even if it's a game, I mean, spending time with it. (laughs)
1: Very cool. Okay, next up, we have uh, an article by um, Remy van Elst on Remy.org, and it is uh, installing NetBSD 9.2 on a DEC Alpha in QEMU with X11. Uh, And Remy writes, this is a guide on installing and running NetBSD for the Alpha CPU architecture on QEMU, including a GUI via X11VNC. It requires you to patch and compile QEMU yourself. So this is not this is not a small task, um, which was never, it was never possible until now to run an actual operating system easily with QEMU Alpha. So this is amazing. It's very cool that Jason Thorpe is putting in so much effort on the QEM suit, QEMU side as all but one patch is upstream already. Alpha emulation has always been a bit of a niche of a niche so seeing this improving QEMU is wonderful. Open does not boot yet, since many more things are missing on the QAMU side. But who knows what the future might bring? Maybe even Windows NT for Alpha will boot in QEMU one day. Uh, and, and Remy does point out that they have a, a GitHub sponsorship if they, if they enjoy your they, if you enjoy his articles and uh, and digital Ocean VPS counter. So if you click through from the show notes and you like the article, maybe, maybe support this person. This article is based on work by um Astrobaby slash Dr. Cranium and his Twitter screenshots. So I think this is one person. Um, his guide is a bit sparse. Uh, and so Remy tries to improve on that one. Uh, Astro Baby does a lot of cool emulation stuff. And their Twitter is full of screenshots of the M1 Mac requiring all kinds of legacy operating systems from AIX to OpenVMS to MorphOS OS on whatever old CPU you can think of. And Remy starts with a, a screenshot of the end result, and the screenshot is uh, Open running with a, a terminal uh, printing out the uname-a, and a web browser, which I think is Dillo, pointed at uh, their own website. Um, and this, and so they continue. If you're interested in alpha emulation or running Open VMS, check out AXP Box or read this page. Uh, this page is. A uh, page on deck emulation. Uh, for more information on available emulators, AXPbox Box can boot the NetBSD 9.1 installer, but it doesn't yet install due to disk emulation issues. If you get it working with 9.2 or the current development release, please let me know. There were earlier attempts to use QEMU's alpha emulation. This is a guide from 2014. you're running Debian, however, Debian dropped the alpha architecture after version 5, which was Lenny. So NetBSD is the only modern option. Maybe Gentoo, but, but I'm unsure of that. True64 will not run in QEMU currently. The Alpha Machine QEMU emulates is based on the Alpha DP264 platform, which to me means nothing. Um, This is probably best known as the basis of the Compaq Alpha Server ES40 and the Compaq Alpha Station ES40 systems, although a number of other Alpha stations um, and OEM boards were also based on it. And so... Because not all of the patches are upstream, you must build QEMU yourself, and, and Remy talks you through the process. And the process is quite simple. Um, there's nothing more than getting the source code, applying the patch, and then doing a regular configure followed by a make. Um, and that will, and then they give you the the command to do install all the dependencies on on Ubuntu, which is their uh, build dependencies, and QEMU, which is nice and straightforward. And they show the patch that needs to be applied, and uh, it's the last remaining patch deals with locking uh the manual process to build the qemu from the latest release is on the official site and you can keep an eye on the source file to see uh if patching is still required which is a great tip if you're writing a blog post that will go out of date really soon and they link the the builds they're doing and so they show you how to clone the source code uh, build and apply the patch so all of the individual steps um and they suggest that you don't do make install since you already have a qemu installed Uh, And if you just want to test this out, due to this being um, built with only one target, it's probably not going to be as useful as a normal QEMU. Um, Once this is finished, you'll be given a QEMU system alpha, which is the the name of the command, which will give you an alpha architecture system, not an alpha build of QEMU, uh, inside the build directory. Uh, And if you look at this, it will tell you that it is there. And running the binary should greet you with uh, a black window with some green text with hello world. Next, Rami goes on to talking about installing Open uh, installing NetBSD. Um, the installation process runs as usual once it's booted up. You use an interactive installer to install NetBSD, but to boot, we must provide the kernel to QEMU manually. The kernel file for installation is different from one for regular use. And so they show how to download the ISO of NetBSD. I don't know if that's, I think that's a real version number, but it's 9.99.88, which almost looks made up. <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> but it could very well be that that bsd9 has a couple of sub uh, revisions versions whatever
1: yeah uh, and so remy shows you uh what to download and then how to verify that you've actually gotten the the alpha architecture binary uh by using file on the, on the binary um and extracting it and they show the command for doing the qmu install qmu installation which is running QEMU image no that's uh, <laughs> making a disk for Q, with QAMU image to make a qcow 2 disk and then it shows running QAMU system alpha command with the the flags and the network interface and the configuration to forward um ports from the the virtual machine host into the into the guest machine and there's some screenshots of the process of netbsd booting which is actually really cool and then it shows you uh the installation they show that networking is working which is it's really nice to see Um, And then they show the different command it takes for running because you need to have, um, I think you need different kernel parameters to point to where the ISO is when you're booting the installer. And once you've done all this, you can now connect to the QMU virtual machine with SSH by SSHing to localhost port uh, 2222, which is is forwarded through. Um, And then you can get a a root login. And they show setting up uh, VNC and, and XGUI. Um, And then I'm going to scroll through all the VNC stuff. Once you can connect on VNC, you can start playing with real applications. And the first thing we show is the hello world of GUIs, which is running XIs. Uh, And Remy continues, how cool is that? A A modern NetBSD with a graphical desktop on a CPU architecture, Alpha, running in QMU with networking. For some more fun, you could install a browser, NetSurf or Dillo, Firefox or Chrome are not yet built as packages, or a game uh, and his personal favorite game is OpenTDD, which is uh, packaged with the companion OpenTDD data, which allows you to play the game. It says it's quite playable, but not very fast. But small maps seem to run okay. It seems the uh, XFC packages are available in the repo, so if you could deck, if so, if you could deck out a, a full-featured desktop, uh, they tried installing it, but after eighteen hours or so, and after eighteen hours or so, it's still running. NetSurf took a long time. And it seems to think the installation of GTK takes so much time. As Jason says on the mailing list, it might be I.O. related. Uh, and then there's a call here just for some help. Yikes. I'll need package install experts to weigh in on this. It's entirely possible that it's bottlenecked on disk emulation. I'm working on getting vert.io to work on alpha, so hopefully we can speed up disk access. Um, and if there isn't if there's software you want to run which isn't packaged, you can always build it for yourself. And I'm sure it'll take take quite a long time. Uh, it a really cool article, uh, and, they, and, and they finish with a nice screenshot of Doom running, which shows that it's definitely a real computer
0: now. <laughs> yeah, of course it runs NetBSD, and if NetBSD is running, then the next thing Doom, of course you've got Doom. is just logical <laughs> succession.
1: <laughs> I, I, I think this is really cool to, to see huh. people putting in this much work, um, emulating an, like, quite a niche architecture. I don't think there are many alphas in people's homes, They're definitely more of a, a corporate appliance. But not anymore. I'm sure there's some unique software that is going to be preserved this way.
0: Yeah, and why not? I mean, it's a nice museum piece, and if it can do a little bit of work, even if it's just XIs or OpenTTD, uh, it's it's good for something. And you can brag with your you know, peers and say, "Hey, look what I got here! I have the weirdest Doom running. <laughs> that would be a great try beating me in that." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, next up is our news roundup, and we have great news from um, a FreeBSD experiment to rethink the OS install. So you know the FreeBSD installer, yes, it's a little bit, well, let's say non-graphical, but at least there's a little bit of boxes and uh, you know buttons in a you know textual way. But here in this one. Uh, Tom Hardy writes in the blog post on hackaday.com that this may soon change, or at least there's um, experiments being made. So he writes While the medium may have evolved from floppy disks to DVDs and USB flash drives, the overall process of installing an operating system onto a FreeBSD computer or on a desktop computer has been more or less the same since the 1980s. In a broad sense, you could say most OS installers require more clicking than typing these days. But on the the whole, not a lot has really changed. Of course, it doesn't mean there isn't room for improvement. Yes. I mean, FreeBSD side note here from myself. On in this, if you're standing in the server room installing a fresh machine, you don't have a mouse available typically. And you don't want to have a mouse to just install a Unix system. But that's me. So but yeah, it's still worthwhile to pursue. Um for the desktop folks among us and others. So among the long list of projects detailed in FreeBSD's April to June 2021 status reports is a brief update on an experimental installer developed by Yang Song. Hopefully that's proper pronunciation here, sorry. Um, so in an effort to make the installation of FreeBSD a bit more user-friendly, the new installer does away with the classic terminal interface and fully embraces the modern web-centric design paradigm. Once the user has booted into the Live OS, they simply need to point the browser to the loopback address at any time to access the installer's GUI. Ah, that's how it's done. Now that alone wouldn't be particularly groundbreaking. After all, Google has implemented an entire operating system with web frameworks in Chrome OS. So it is making the installer a web app really that much of a stretch? But what makes Yang's installer so interesting is that the web interface isn't limited to just the local machine. It can be accessed by any browser on the network. So yeah, you can let other people install the box for you. Um, That means you can put the install disk for FreeBSD into a headless machine on your network and use the browser on your laptop or even smartphone to access the installer. The Greybeards will point out that savvy users have always been able to access the text installer from another computer over SSH. But even the most staunch ludite has to admit that simple, uh, or simply opening a browser on whatever device you have uh, and pointing it to the target machine's IP address is a big usability improvement. While the software appears complete enough to get through the basic installation, we should remind readers these are still early days. There's currently no authentication in place, so once you're booted into the live environment, anyone on the network can format your drives and start the install process. Yeah, not yeah, we'll improve that. Uh, some sections of the GUI aren't fully functional either, with the occasional note from Yang popping up to explain what does and doesn't work. I think that was a um, student project um for the foundation, if I'm not mistaken. Uh for example, the manual network configuration panel currently only works with the Wi-Fi interface. So that's all he personally has to test with. Quite a modern installer, indeed. Yeah, I think if the building blocks are there, the, the someone else can add the the missing pieces for wired wired networking and other variants. Um, Some would argue that part of what makes alternative operating systems like Linux and BSD appealing is the fact that they can happily run on all the hardware. So we imagine the idea of an installer using a memory-hungry web browser to present its interface won't go over well with many users. In our testing, the experimental installer ISO won't even boot unless it's detecting at least four gigabytes of RAM on board. But it's currently an interesting experiment and something to keep an eye on as it matures. Yeah, there's a couple of comments in there. Um, I think people are interested at least, and I mean, this is not, uh, oh, we commit this tomorrow and this is what you have for the next hundred years, Um, but it's at least a good start. And I mean, we can always talk about how this would look and the design of how many menus will follow. but at least it's it's a work in progress and um, it's proved that it's it can be done. Yeah, but it's really cool. I think the, the server side is
1: more interesting. Um, you, I can imagine something booting using like iPixy or um, UEFI's HTTPS boot. And so you just point your UEFI at a URL, and then you connect to the machine on your local network and then do the install from there. Yeah, And you don't really actually need to touch the machine you're installing to other than yeah, I mean, to get it to boot the right place. I think that would be really cool. And this is a building block that would get you closer to that. So I think it's, it's excellent.
0: Yeah, and, give it an answer file. And I mean, who, how many people have clicked? If they have to install like 50 machines, they don't click each individual machine through. They just provide an answer file and like multicast that over a whole network.
1: Yeah, this is definitely a, 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 an interesting idea that I, I haven't seen people do with FreeBSD before. It's really cool. I like the weird ideas are sometimes the best ones. Even if they don't pan out themselves, you get you get other stuff from it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of people who could say, oh, this menu could completely be avoided or we can automatically detect where you are based on your IP address like this. And so, um, yeah, it's a good start. And who knows who picks this up and finishes it in some way. Okay, next up we have uh,
1: uh, an article, which is a follow-up to a GhostBSD story we, we spoke about um, last month. Um, And so this is GhostBSD and they say the switch to FreeBSDRC.d is coming. After trying to keep all services for OpenRC up to date with FreeBSD services, I weighed the pros and cons of OpenRC. The only pro that made the decision hard to make was OpenRC's service status feature. So I turned to the community with a poll to see the consensus. The poll was up for a week and the results are as follows. FreeBSDRC.d. 68% 68% of the vote with 217 votes. Open 32% of the vote with 104 votes. So a total of 321 votes. So I'm going with the majority. I've been running ghost BSD with RC.d for over a month to ensure a smooth transition. Now I feel comfortable pushing the update to switch to rc.d. So tonight GOAT BS... GOAT BSD is a different thing. Ghost BSD oh, yeah. <laughs> will have a, an update. That will set the BSD rc system to system rc in bootloader.conf, and add all services from OpenRC default run level to slash /etc/rc.conf. Slash RC, is it expected that the colourful boot messages will disappear? Oh, that's. Just, it is to be noted that OpenRC will not be removed from our source code before next year. For those who are disappointed with this change, may your feet put your feet in my shoes. Maintaining FreeBSD services plus FreeBSD port services for OpenRC is too much for one person. In addition, I do not have the adequate manpower to keep up with all the new services and services changes. I have people helping, but it is not enough to keep up. So instead of trying to keep up with something that already works well, GhostBSD will focus on improving the FreeBSD desktop experience on on RC. It's it's a shame to see uh, this foray into OpenRC fail, but I mean this is what happens this is and this is the sort of thing that happened with um libra ssl outside of openbsd it it takes a lot of active development to keep things alive and if there's friction then they they fall apart
0: yeah that's not a nice uh, way how it went but at least people um started it I, i think that's always worthwhile the effort and, um, you never know how it's going. I mean, it could very well, be that it draws a lot of people that want to help out and then it just goes through the roof. And it, if it's just serving as a, um, as a, like a learning exercise, that's also good. I mean, it could very well be that we have as a FreeBSD system could also have switched and then would have thought, Hey, was this a good decision or bad? But in this case, this is more about having people that help. Um, provide these updated scripts that um, saying that OpenRC is bad in, in one way or the other. So it's not.
1: Yeah, and, and so for some things like a, a smaller project can lead the way and act as a proof of concept so that FreeBSD can follow and they, they can take the risk that the the larger project won't take. And Sometimes you follow, sometimes you don't. But yeah, no, it's, it, 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 it may be a bit of a shame, for, especially for people that liked OpenRC, but it's really cool that it was tried and I, I'm glad that we're still seeing development like this.
0: And I mean, people choose GhostBSD not because of the RC system, because most of the time they don't have to worry about it or don't use it very much. Uh, GhostBSD has other features. So check it out, um, read the website. It has a couple cool things uh, for you in stock, uh, despite uh, switching back to RC.de, which is also a good, you know, (laughs) RC system. It's not about, oh, this is so old, no one's using it. Um, So yeah definitely uh, we will check out future things from ghostbsd if they evolve and we'll mention it here on the show like this next one that we have we have found that irix gets llvm that's a longer post on the uh, forums.irixnet.org and um, it starts with LLVM for IRIX. Hey all! Oh, I started working on getting Clang slash LLVM to output ELF binaries for IRIX a few weeks ago. I noticed a while back that LLVM already has 99% of what you need to get working binaries for IRIX. Its MIPS support is pretty good, and it already supports a wide range of MIPS processors, and it also has support for the three major MIPS ABIs that IRIX uses: O32, N32, and N64. As a matter of fact, you don't even need to necessarily modify LLVM in any way to be able to get freestanding object files that can theoretically be linked to IRIX. To my understanding, user Ashaton attempted to use LLVM in this way. I wanted to make, or to want to take it a step further and get full-blown IRIX support integrated into client LLVM, as well as to be able to natively host the full LLVM suite, suite on IRIX itself. So I started off with just attempting to get LLVM itself to build and run on Irix. The main changes here were just small ifdev sgi patches to get some files to fix some build errors. However, I pretty quickly ran into a brick wall. Linking all the LLVM static binaries to produce the various executables quickly caused the n32 gcc/binutils to out of uh, or oom killed, so out of memory. After banging my head against the wall for a few days, trying to get a full N64 toolchain, I gave up and switched gears to instead try and teach Clang about IRIX. This was actually relatively easy. LLVM has a very clean and easy to read code base, and it already has plenty of OS drivers built in. For IRIX, I decided to mostly copy a driver file and just make changes here and there to specify IRIX's dynamic linker and system directories. There were some other miscellaneous changes i had to make in our files or in other files uh, mostly relating to target triplets although it also has to specify an irix os target which again wasn't hard at all so finally i built lvm with only clang enabled and tested it my hello world didn't build clang was specifying that sgug's ld link using l32 uh, bt32 uh, which isn't supported I made a quick patch to clang to instead pass uh, that file uh, if the target os is irix this time the build failed again but for a different reason for some reason binutils couldn't find a c runtime or libgcc even though I had them in the sysroot that I passed to binutils when I built it uh, I then had an epiphany. I could just have Clang output object files, then link them on a real SGI, similar to what the OpenVMS developers did when they were porting LLVM. I uploaded HelloWorld.o to an Octane then ran GCC on it to link it. And what do you know, it printed Hello world from LLVM on an SGI. And there's a screenshot provided in the forum post as well. And uh, that was pretty cool. <laughs> but I wanted to see if my Clang LLVM patches in combo with SGOG binutils on the Octane could handle something a bit more complex. So I got to work on building Figlet. Oh yeah, the nice ASCII art uh, printing tool. I immediately ran into some compilation errors. These were relative uh, related to types, so I assumed that I needed to use the same include Uh, fix that GCC uses on the IRIX. I added a system include to the IRIX driver for user slash include slash fixed in addition to the user slash user slash include. However, even with these fixes, figlet still didn't build. And then I was beginning to think that maybe I just got lucky after all with the Hello World program. But then I realized that the IRIX standard C library enables or disables various types and prototypes after depending on what flags the compiler has enabled by default. I didn't feel like putting in the work to add them to Clang yet, so I instead printed out all the predefines GCC has on IRIX, then stuck off them, all of them into an IrixDefines.h file and added that to the top of all figlet source files so all of the predefines would apply before any IRIX headers were included. This actually worked, although it resulted in incredibly spammy output during the build since a lot of preprocessor macros were getting redefined by Clang or by the various system headers got my figlet object files and uploaded them all to the octane figlet linked and actually ran okay there's a link to the llvm work on github and there's plenty of follow-ups on the forum of course saying that they like this and i'm fairly sure this will continue in one way or the other
1: yeah so the the author here has um has two more follow-ups in this thread there's there's one on the main page and then there's another one on the second page and they they, they continue to talk through their, their process and picking out MIPS architectures and everything it takes to get um, LLVM working for IRIX. And if you were interested in this, this is definitely a great thread to dig into. And I'm sure there's lots more
0: interesting IRIX stuff in this forum. Mm. Oh, yes, for sure. And so you never know, LLVM will might breathe some new life into that. we will never know. It's kind of interesting that people still want to get things done. I mean, why not? It's worthwhile to do this.
1: Yeah, and, and the person posting here, or or Xeon, um, is running all of this stuff on, on, on Octane, so they're running on original SGI hardware as well. So they're, they're definitely putting ah, yeah. a lot of effort.
0: Yeah, so if you have those, you might uh, get an update. <laughs> you never know. Very cool. So before we head into our feedback and questions uh, land for this week, we should mention that TarSnap sponsors this episode and has been sponsoring for a while but what is TarSnap by the way for people who are new to this episode or to the whole podcast TarSnap is an online backup service for truly paranoid people what's the paranoid part in that you ask well uh truly paranoid people don't trust anyone uh even themselves sometimes uh and they want to know what is this um doing in the background is there any hidden stuff in there is there someone peeking at my files that i want to back up and TarSnap lets you look at their source code what it's doing and is actually quite um paranoid itself of keeping your data secure by first segmenting and deduplicating the files you want to back up that you have to define first then it creates some unique blocks out of that finds what you know unique files are there that reduce the file size then compresses it and then encodes these blocks with a encryption key that you create first on your machine on that's all happening locally on your machine before it accesses any network and then once that uh, is done the encrypted files are then sent to a remote uh, backup server that's hosted on aws that's the uh, aws uh, amazon tar snap service and there it sits waiting and waiting until one unfaithful day you have to retrieve that file or those files and on the cloud, no one can look at them because they're encrypted and the people who have the keys, a.k.a. you, can unencrypt it. And so if you need them back one day, you do the reverse. It downloads the file, it unencrypts them, and then does the decompression and all the other things snap does to keep your file size small enough. You can charge a Tarsnap account for as little as $5 in the beginning and start making your first backups. It also has a nice documentation that shows you, hey, how much would I have to spend uh, using Tarsnap for the given files that I want to backup uh, that can simulate the, the usage of your files and how much it would cost. And plenty of clients are available for the Windows, the BSDs, the Linuxes out there, macOS even. So no excuse to not make a backup using Tarsnap. Check it out, it has nice documentation, you can look into the source code and it's competitive pricing that should be affordable to almost anyone out there. So no excuses for not making backups.
1: Okay, and and now it's time for our our feedback and questions. We have four questions this week from two different people. Um, the, The first question came from somebody who gave us a pronunciation guide for their name. Uh, And from their question, I understand they're Irish, but they didn't tell us if it's pronounced Gaelic or Gaelic. So I'm really, I'm really stuck with this. Uh, So these questions are from Michal O'Lochling. I I hope that's right. Uh, If we can't do it with a pronunciation guide, we're really in trouble. Uh, Michal writes, uh, hello lads, I've been listening to and enjoying, that's that's good to hear, uh, BST now for about three years. Thanks for putting the work in, and I'm on a big catch-up binge at the moment, not having had the chance to listen to a lot of this year's episodes because of the big global thing. I've had three questions that i have been meaning to send in for a while, but things kept getting in the way, especially this year. Anyway, one of these is just after updating itself, so I decided it was time to hit NEW MAIL. Any help you could offer me would be greatly appreciated. So the first one, Q1 jelly full disk encryption when using the standard installer dvd on an amd64 machine there's a flaw in hardware-based encryption of certain ssd units as described here they say it's all sorted now they're in quotes Uh, i have my concerns i have found it surprisingly hard to find concrete information on which ssd models are not affected even lists of effective models can be nebulous one former a hard where a supplier actually told me it was a complete non-problem because an attacker would have to have physical possession of the drive to be able to take advantage of the flaw. I don't really know what to make of that one. Anyway, the upshot is I'm reluctant to trust this kind of hardware encryption, and I doubt I'm alone. Even Microsoft is after changing its BitLocker default to software encryption. Prior to that, I'd been enforcing software-based encryption manually in group policy on my Windows machines and still do. I haven't had a chance to install 12.2 FreeBSD instance yet, so things may, be after changing a bit but installing to SSD media in the past I was seeing the installer flash up a message on the screen for a split second that seemed to indicate that Jelly had found and was using this kind of hardware encryption. I could never find any way of stopping it from doing this so the question can it be done? I am not sure if Jelly is using the SSD's hardware encryption. I think what you might be seeing is Jelly detecting and loading the AES kernel modules so that the hardware crypto acceleration is used for the cryptographic operations before they go to the disk. Because as I understand about Geon providers, and I'm really sure I'm not right about this, the way they layer would make it really hard for Jelly, which sits on top of the disk provider, to reach through and use a feature of the disk like this. And so I think the stack sort of looks like the the block device jelly your file system, and then your file system UFS or ZFS, um, or ms if you want. Um, And I I don't think you have to worry about this hardware feature, but the best thing to do is always assert the wrong thing and see if the internet will get back to you. But I'm pretty sure, I mean, have you ever noticed this, Benedict?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think, um, as you said, it can't reach as far down as it thinks, but it's not even used to feed the entropy.
1: Uh, I mean, it's probably using uh, cryptographic hardware on the processor, but not on the SSD. And I think the SSD is the thing they're worried about. A way you could test this would be to use jelly on a FreeBSD machine and encrypt a uh, memory disk file and see if you get the same stuff loaded when you load Jelly because then you know the memory disk is definitely not using a hardware cryptographic offload um, for the disk because the disk is just in in memory and then eventually mm-hmm. on a file. Um, but I, I don't think this is something you need to be concerned about. But I think maybe you want to, when it comes to security, sometimes you do just need to dig more and find out. But I think maybe you're conflating two different types of hardware offload and one of them is fine and one of them is is, is really flawed.
0: Yeah, I think you don't have to worry about not creating enough entropy for the random keys or the randomness it's requiring. Um, But if you really want to be super uh, paranoid about this, um, I know the installer uses Galley or can encrypt Galley disks or create Galley encrypted disks this way. Um, But if you really want to make it uh in your own way then you have to drop into the shell installer and do everything from there like manually partitioning and erasing everything and stuff like that but yeah the the stuff in the the crypto in the hardware itself that's vendor specific and uh, probably not open because in crypto (laughs) that's kind of a "Mm, we gave you the keys to the castle thing uh so on top of that as freebsd is involved that. I'm fairly sure provides enough uh, good randomness to not worry about this sort of thing. Yeah, I I think
1: if we were using the hardware offload, there would have been a couple of big threads about this on Hackers at some point, and the FreeBSD Hackers mailing list. Okay, so their second question. Now, I'm not a programmer or developer or even a full time sysadmin, but I sometimes find myself in the need of something or other that doesn't exist, and I have to homebrew it for myself. Such was the case with two items that I put together in 2018, which I needed because my working language is Irish. Wanting to do the right thing and give something back, however small I submitted these as patches. The first was uh, the GA underscore IE UTF eight locale. Of course, I didn't expect these patches to move fast as they're very much uh, in the effects only me territory. And I have my homebrew in any case, but in due course, a couple of days ago, a comment popped up under the bug I referenced saying a commit references this bug and its status is closed fixed. Happy days. The second patch was a key map file to provide Irish language support. This one's still open and it's a bit more complicated. I'm fairly sure the key map file's fine, but I can't get non breaking space to work at all. And two, several of the Irish characters lack glyph support in the native console fonts available to VT. I tested to make sure it was just a matter of glyph support by taking the unifont.bdf file, feeding it to vtfont.convert to make it vt-compatible font file and running via control control f to load it. After that, everything except non-breaking space worked fine. By the way, non-breaking space is just a nice to have. I've deliberately not posted any more comments under the bug on the basis that the developers know what they're doing, and I don't know how to resolve the outstanding problems myself. If I did, I'd have done it. And I don't want to come across as whiny, impatient newbie who wants to affect... The one says, only affects me, patch implemented right now. On the other hand, I'd hope that next year will be a bit less hectic than this one was. And I don't know if there's anything I can do to help things move on in a way that won't offend etiquette. Would you have any
0: suggestions? Yes.
1: Respond with a whiny comment.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that Really, this is not not for fun. This is. I mean, this is going on... This is from the last post uh, from 2018. I think a little hey, is anyone still working on this follow-up is perfectly fine in this time frame. Yeah,
1: you can, you can follow up and you can say the work you've done. You can reference this episode. Um, what following up in the bug will do, it will send emails to everyone that is subscribed to the bug and it will change the last modified status on the bug so it is more recent. These These are good things. So one of them is it will bring it to attention to people who might care uh, and it'll come up on the, the right mailing list as well. So people will see this, and someone might just have forgotten about it. Um, the original developers that have interacted with you on it as well might see it and realize that it could just be committed as is because it's the, the best we can do. Um, updating the last contacted thing will stop someone like me at a bugathon coming along and closing it because nothing's been done. Um, and so this is fine. I, I wouldn't worry about appearing whiny. There's a difference between sending five emails a week and sending an email once every three years. And (laughs) there's a point between these two, which is still acceptable and more likely to get things done.
0: Offer help and ask, hey, can I provide some additional information? Do you need something else to close this? How can we move this forward? This is definitely in the, I offer help and not, oh, why is this not done yet?
1: Yeah, Uh, Yeah. And if you can say that I'm the user of this and it works fine for me, that is actually enough for a developer to commit something that has known problems but is working well enough um, because things do get fixed when they're in the tree because they impact more people. Uh, and I'm sure there are other people who want to work in Irish and use FreeBSD that would like for support. So yeah, complain. It'd be, it'd be fine. It's the right thing to do.
0: Since you're on languages... Uh, would you be interested in maybe starting a, I don't know, Irish translation of the FreeBSD handbook on our web plate instance with other people? Isn't there already an Irish project there? Oh, that's interesting. See, that this, is what nice. this is how we pull you in. <laughs> right? I mean, language is a thing. You're probably not the only uh, Irish-speaking or Gaelic-speaking person out there. So, could I mean, you don't have to put in the whole work for the whole handbook, but an article to get started and a started thing will help someone else come along and start as well
1: and i i am sure there are plenty of people that are um are irish and want to learn the irish language beyond what they've learned in school and are lacking uh, something relatable to do and fixing bits of the handbook or translating the next page is something that people can pick up and the the documentation is collaborative as uh, michael w lucas said last week um it's a collaborative effort, and it takes all of us just to pull it forward to make it better.
0: Yeah. OK. You might never know what people contribute to that. Either they're right next door or on the other side of the, of the, of the globe. But yeah, all working on the same thing.
1: Very good. Question okay. three. Question three. I try to avoid installing Linuxisms in FreeBSD, not because I'm all doctrinaire, but out of a sense of when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, that and the fact that some Linux packages seem to drag in and hu- enormous huge swathes of other Linux packages that you don't think you need at all. So that means no vim, no bash. Fair enough. However, bash has at least partial Irish localization where tcsh and sh seem to have none. It failed. It's failed me to find out if they have localization programs or even if they can be localized. Now I've seen some debate about whether console messages and even file names in languages other than USEN are a pretty pretty extravagance or a simple business requirement and i don't propose to bring that debate in here but i do miss my boxes telling me i'm i'm, I'm sorry i'm not oh, going to try and read some <laughs> <hear> um, <laughs> I, I, lovely beautiful phrases in, in in irish that i can't pronounce um can i do anything on this front um i i i, I see I, i'm not sure if this question's a bit confused you, you, vim is not a piece of linux software um uh, the vim in freebsd pulls in a ton of stuff though I, I always hate it i don't need ruby and python with my vim I, I wish vim could separate out the bindings so we didn't require the entire language runtime as well um you can use bash if you want to use bash i use zsh on freebsd machines i think most users install their preferred shell yeah then have it the your same machine, across your many rules. platforms um so i I wouldn't worry so much about this but if you really want to localize these tools then it is a great way to start doing development is to try uh this might be one of those projects you try and you learn it's really big and and give up but the learning part is the big part and once you try to do it you you get an idea of what they are
0: Hmm. oh yeah why not i mean start small you never know what comes out of that what you what you learn what people you meet what project to get involved that's how we started i mean yeah years ago th- th- thanks for these
1: questions Michal. they were really good at uh, please send one at a time in the future and we'll cover you more often
0: oh even better yeah so good r- run around your patches you are already halfway there to uh getting them a uh, more, bit more attention uh we have another one i think uh from nelson about dummy net. uh nelson wrote us i passed on the link to dummy net from this week's BSD now i podcast no episode number but one of the recent ones i guess uh to colleagues at the university of utah flux project and center for high performance computing so flux f l u x all caps is all about network emulation and one of the team responded that dummynet has been largely replaced by tlem and supplied this link there's a paper uh its lead author is the dummynet architect oh cool TLEM, very high speed link emulation. That's your territory, Tom. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I actually saw Luigi present this paper
1: at a conference in Rome in 2016. Uh, I don't think it's the original venue because it was an invited paper. Um, And he was talking about how to do link emulation at a terabit and above. And so that was the sort of scale for this new work. Um, I know Luigi vanished into Google, and so I'm not really sure what's happened to him now, but we don't have... We don't have TLM and FreeBSD or or any of the BSDs. Um, I'm sure we'd love to have really high-speed link emulation, but yeah, but but we don't. Um, I'm sure if people were interested in doing this sort of link emulation on a BSD, there would be developers very happy to take that sort of work on uh, if if they were paid to do it. Mm. yeah, Yeah, thanks for the heads up. It's a really, it is a really good paper. And if you're interested in link emulation, it's definitely worth a read. And it does touch on a lot of the stuff that we now see Google do that Van Jacobsen talked about um, in subsequent years, and they have coming through with Quick, where they talk about uh, earliest uh, departure timing for packets, so making pacing work, and uh, timing wheels, so making time generation and putting packets out easier. And so it's a nice paper, and it's part of a big piece of work that we're seeing bits of over time. So thanks for the link.
0: Yeah, I was completely new to this. Uh, so yeah, see what people come up with and send it to us. Very good. That fills the episode. And I mean, gets other people interested. As well. <laughs> so it's not just good for us and for everyone else as well. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, uh, I think what we have for you. If you have anything for us, uh, feedback, ideas, topics, or interview partners, maybe either yourself or someone else that agrees to this, uh, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we'll get in touch or, Have a new episode out with your content. Thank you for listening, and till next week. Thanks.